Well, good morning. My name is Josh Wall. I'm one of the pastors on staff here, and I'd like to second Lindsay's in- welcome and introduction and just say we're glad that you are with us this morning. If you are a longtime member or if you are new, it is good to come together and it is good to come and worship. We are in the middle of a series that we have been working through, going through the book of Ephesians. Uh, and Ephesians roughly breaks down into two major parts. There's the first half, which is about the inner transformation that happens within our lives. And then there is the second half that talks about because of that inward transformation, what does that mean as we engage the world outward? And the section that we're dealing with today is of that outward direction and variety as Paul is giving specific ideas and thoughts and how we are supposed to live. So I invite you to sit, to listen, and to hear the word of the Lord this morning. Our lesson this morning is taken from Ephesians, of course, chapter 6, the last chapter, verses 1 through 9. Let us hear this lesson. Let us hear God's word. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear or reverence and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. This then is the word of the Lord. Context is everything. This is not an overly controversial statement, this notion that context is everything. And if you think about it or think about moments in your life, the fundamental importance of context is pretty clear and apparent. This is true in any conversation you have, in any argument that you have had over your time. Understanding the context, the phrase and scenario that set up the comment that riled you up is important. It's especially true, I think, in regards to scripture. Uh, For me personally, just speaking for myself, context, I think, is the reason that first got me hooked on reading and trying to understand scripture. 
I came to faith when I was a senior in high school. I had a moment that even now as an adult, I still struggle to define, but there was a moment where I was one way and God interceded and suddenly I was new and things were different and changed. And I started to read the Bible because that's what you're supposed to do, right? And, and I was curious and hungry and I would read the scriptures and I would get so deeply, deeply confused and I would dig into theology and eventually I decided what I was digging into was context. I went to Calvin College just down the road that way a bit and I took, signed up for my first religion class in part because uh, I wanted to understand the context of my favorite book of the Bible, which was the Gospel of John that I loved and felt like I understood so little of. Context is everything. And I think that is true generally. I think it is especially true on those passages of scripture that can feel difficult and at times can almost feel oppressive. Because for some, this section of text can and is that way. I have friends, and I'll just be honest, I have friends that say that they like this Jesus guy, they're on board with some of it, but they find some of the teachings that Paul has to tell us backwards. They find them oppressive, they find them almost retrograde. And, and honestly, I'll, I'll be honest, when we preach, for the most part, when we preach here at Fifth, we tend to practice a kind of preaching that's called Lectio Continua, which just means we start at the beginning of the book and we preach all the way through to the end of the book. Not always, but that's our normal mode. And we do that uh, because we feel that's how the letters were written, that's how the Gospels were written. And that means that we get to part, preach about some good, easy, exciting parts, and we get to preach about some parts that feel tricky or complicated. And today, Maybe for you is one of those. But context, my friends, is everything. And as I've dug into these scriptures and prayed over these and read and studied, uh, there is great liberation that can be found in these if we go on a journey together in regards to what it looks like. Paul is addressing at the end of this. So this is the end of his letter. We are nearly wrapped up with this section. And Paul is addressing... uh, Well, he's addressing the church. The letter in Ephesians was written to the church in Ephesus, which would have been a small to medium-sized group, probably 30 to 75 people, right? It would have been a small group, the biggest amount you could gather in a household. And Paul is addressing primarily the cultural context of the church in Ephesus. And in particular, he does this. This section often ends up getting called the household codes. So Paul writes letters for a specific purpose to make a point. And then at the end, he also addresses a variety of other things that are going on in the community. And he does this in a variety of his letters. And we see it show up. So there's this this section that often appears at the end that are called the household codes. Eh, Codes. John preached about some of these last week uh, where Pastor John talked about the, the ways in which husbands and wives should interact because Paul is telling us how to do that. And the section we have today is Paul addressing the cultural context of how we interact as families and how we interact as slaves and masters. There's a lot to say and let's, let's, let's just dig in. Let's 
Let's hear the beginning of that again because it's just, it's worth bearing in mind. Ephesians 6, starting in verse 1, and I'll, I'll read for a bit. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well for you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Father, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction in the Lord. In order to understand what's going on here, context is everything. So we need to understand how the family functioned in the Greco-Roman world, which would have been the time and the era and the place in which Paul was writing. It's called the Greco-Roman world because it was a culture that was created by the Greeks that then the Romans came along and built on and in many ways perfected, you could say, if you want to look at it that way. The Greco-Roman world had a lot of values and a lot of ways in which we do things. And family was a unique manifestation of those. Back in the ancient world, life was not easy, life was not smooth. And so family was important because family was the means by which you stayed alive and the means by which you thrived. Families broadly existed in the Greco-Roman world in what is called an honor and shame society. In an honor and shame society, and there's a variety of these societies that still exist today, depending on what subculture of Dutch West Michigan you grew up in, you could have grown up in an honor and shame society or something close to it. But in the Greco-Roman understanding of an honor and shame society, there would be a variety of forces that were pulling and pushing on any individual at a time. There would be cultural forces that would say you're supposed to do these things and push you into families and groups. And then there would be centripetal forces that would pull you inward within those groups that helped maintain boundaries. Honor and shame society had a lot of expectations and assumptions about what you do and do not do. And in that honor and shame kind of context, it is worth noting that everything rose and fell with the father in the family. It is the definition of patriarchy is what we have. And it comes out of this context. It comes not exclusively, but it comes to arise out of this honor and shame function that existed in the Greco-Roman world. And in the Greco-Roman world, it wasn't a scenario of father knows best. It was a scenario of father is best. Whatever dad said went, full stop. There was no discussion. There was no negotiation. And uh, this was a cultural expectation and it was a legal expectation. The families were so structured around each other that it, it, it's hard to understand for us today Right? There's, there's even a legal code for it called the patria potestas. Sorry, my Latin is kind of rusty. You'll have to forgive me. The patria potestas that gave the father legal rights over everything. Because again, this is an honor and shame society that groups people together by what you should and should not do. And that shaped every part of their life. The word for family uh, is the word oikos in Greek. It means family. It also literally means house. Uh, it also means household. Um, it's also the root word for which we get economics. Oikos doesn't mean just family in the way that we describe it as Westerners. If I say I were to go out to dinner with my family, that normally would mean myself, my wife, and my three kids, right? When we reference family, it is our immediate nuclear family. Family within the Greco-Roman honor-shame culture would be the broader extended family that you would have relationships with. And that affected everything. It was the people that you did business and transactions with. 
Businesses were run by families, not individuals. Structures and societies were run by families and engaged with as families. It even affected architecture. If you think about the way things are built, we live in a cold northern climate. They were in a warm Mediterranean climate. Um, but when houses were built, they weren't typically built as standalone units like they are for us. They would be a piece of property that would have a central courtyard, and then around that would be different buildings that you would live in. The social atmosphere and space, the living room activities, the kitchen activities all took place mostly in the courtyard, and then you would retreat to sleep in the rooms that were off to the side, right? Houses, the notion of a house is different. This is the kind of notion when Jesus says, in my father's house, there's many rooms. If you've heard that scripture before, that is technically correct. That is what it says in Greek. It also is a little misleading for us because when we think of that, if we said, in my father's house, there's many rooms and everybody has a room, which is what Jesus goes on to say, just come on up. We expect there to be like a hall of suites and everybody goes. But in the ancient world, house means compound it would be better translated, you could say, or it would be a, worth translating uh, as saying, on my father's estate, there are many places to sleep. On my father's uh, house, there are many cottages, right? There are many rooms around a courtyard. Family was this deep, deep interconnected thing. And in the midst of all of that, the culture said to maintain that connection, there has to be one strong leader who is the dad. Everything rose and fell with him. He said, you're going to do this. You went and did that. Now, if you thought to yourself as a good rebellious American or teenager, no, 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 I don't want to do that. I don't want to be a plumber, dad. I want to go be a painter. Dad would say, no, you're a plumber. Go be a plumber. You're going into finance. You're going into the family business. And if you said no, he had the legal right to do anything he wanted to you. If you didn't listen, he could go and get the police and you could be arrested. There's a quote, there's actually a variety of quotes that go on about this, um, but my favorite one is from a guy named Dionysius who says, the law of the Romans gave virtually full power to the father over his son, whether he thought proper to imprison him, to scourge him, to put him in chains and keep him at work in the fields or to put him to death all legally given. The culture at the day was one where the dad said, go, and you went, or you suffered his wrath as he saw fit. The father had legal rights over everything. The mother then had legal rights over nothing. To be a woman to be a mother in the Greco-Roman world meant you had authority over nothing. You could influence, sure. You could impact your husband. But over in our culture where parenting is more of the wife's responsibility or is a shared responsibility, the father still reigned which is interesting when you think about it for those of you that are parents. 
there's a line that's been ringing through my head by the, the professor and author Elizabeth Stone who talks about what it means to be a parent. And she says, making the decision to have a child, it is momentous. It is, decide, it is to decide to forever have your heart go walking around outside your body. And I cannot imagine what it would be like to have your heart walk around outside of your body and to realize you have no legal protection or authority or you are overruled by your husband at his whim. In light of that, let's hear the words from Paul again because this is the context that he is speaking. This is the culture that everyone would have assumed. Paul says, children, obey your parents parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise so that you may go well for you and you may enjoy a long life on the earth. I said at the top that some people find these sections of scripture almost oppressive and context is everything. In their original context, the words of Paul here are life-giving and empowering because suddenly it is not just the father who is accountable for everything. It is honor your parents, both of them. That would not be a cultural expectation. That would not have been assumed. Honor your father and your mother. The mother gets mentioned, which again would never have occurred. Paul's words that we can sometimes read in our context and we find oppressive for the original community that they were written to were liberating and life-giving and empowering because they say at the end of the day that Paul is directing husbands and wives and children to love, respect, and honor each other. And that was not expected. That was not the plan. That was not the way Greco-Roman culture would have worked. You respected your dad because if you didn't, he would kill you or he would imprison you or he would give you a horrible job that you would hate the rest of your life. You tolerated him. Maybe you loved him Maybe not, but you had to tolerate. The call of Paul says love, honor, and respect one another. And he even goes on to extend it to fathers too. And this is a line that's easy to miss. Fathers, and this isn't to say, this is the people in charge. Do not exasperate your children. Do not wind and grind them down. Instead, bring them up in training and reflection in the Lord. Right? He goes on after this. And then he moves to talk about slaves and masters. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Now, We're going to talk about slaves and masters. And it's worth pointing out that that is a challenging thing for us to do as Americans, right? It is especially a challenging thing, I will say right here, is a challenging thing for me to do as a white American. Slavery in America has a long and bloody history. Slavery in America, as a friend of mine likes to put it, in many ways can be understood as America's original sin. 
So what do we do with sections like this that talk about slaves and masters and how we are and are not supposed to treat one another? Again, context is everything. It's worth pointing out, and I'll explain how, but slavery in the Greco-Roman and ancient world is fundamentally different than slavery as we experienced here in the USA. Slavery in the Greco-Roman world was different than what we experienced here in the USA. Well, how? Right? Well, let me explain to you how and how it's fundamentally different, what it looks like. Slavery in the Greco-Roman world was typically temporary. You were a slave for a period of time in your life, normally five to ten years. Actually, before we unpack all of that, let's make sure that we are clear about what slavery is and was for us as Americans when our country was founded. Slavery was built on the premise that people went to somewhere far away, kidnapped other folks, threw them on a boat, sailed them across the ocean, sold them as property to other people, primarily distinguished by race, in which the captured people and their descendants and their descendants of their descendants in perpetuity function as property for their owners. Slavery and the way it manifests itself here in the U.S., it is not a stretch to say it was a horrible thing. Slavery as it existed in the Greco-Roman world was not a good thing, but it was a very different thing. It was temporary. Again, 5, 10, the longest they have recorded is 20 years. Slavery back in the day was also surprisingly common. Historians point out that at some stages, a third of Italy was enslaved to the rest of Italy, right? Slavery was a common occurrence and structure and strategy. It was not divided around racial lines, unlike here in the U.S., and at no point in time in slavery uh, as it existed in the Greco-Roman world did the person become an object. Slavery was a temporary place of servanthood. And in many ways, it's primarily best understood as being under an additional layer of authority. So I've been trying to figure out how to explain this. This, this kind of stuff is the thing I nerd out on all day. Uh, this is the Greco-Roman world I find utterly fascinating and could talk about literally for hours. So here is me trying to graphically what, represent what it looked like to live in the ancient world. Uh, especially in regards to issues of authority and power. So uh, there in that red square, that is you. We live in a Western individualized society and culture where we get to make our own decisions, primarily not exclusively, but often if you want to do something, you can go do it. There was a level in the ancient world where you were accountable to you as well, but immediately after that, you were accountable to your broader family. And then within that family, this would be the oikos. This would be with the father who could tell you exactly what you would do, right? After a sense of family, then comes a broader sense of tribe. I think it's tribe. There we go. It's tribe. And a tribe is a collection and a group of families or households that would get together for a broader sense of thriving uh, and trying to succeed and survive. And uh, at In this situation, the bottom is accountable to all the levels and layers and expectations as it goes up. A collection of tribes then would get together and they normally ended up forming a nation or a race. And they would form form a race of people who would get together, 
right? And race doesn't mean racial. It would just be a collection of people that had a shared sense of culture, a collection of tribes. Out of that, then we get a nation, a collection of nations out of a nation But nations rarely existed independently. They were often overlapped and united in a sense of an empire. And that was all united. And even if you were the emperor, if you were at the top of the pyramid, there was still an expectation that you were under the authority and the power of the cosmos and the gods. So what it meant, this is is just important context to understand, to understand what slavery looked like and what it meant. What it meant for you to function as a slave in the ancient world was that that yellow layer, you would get an additional one of those. Your oikos would be replaced. You would go from no longer being part of your dad's family, of that family unit, you would now be part of someone else's. But you still had the rest of the expectations and authorities. Slaves were often treated more like children than they were in the American understanding of what it meant to be a slave. Slaves had independence. They could choose where they wanted to go. But if they ran away, they got in trouble. If they didn't show up, they got in trouble. The same as children did. What it meant to be a slave was not that you became an object, but that you had a duty and an obligation. The word slave and servant in Greek is literally the exact same word. We translate it different ways based on context. And in the midst of this, Paul then calls everyone, like he calls children and parents, he calls everyone to love, respect, and honor one another. Paul is bending the social convention to one that affirms the imago Dei, the image of God in one another. And this is challenging for some of us. If you look at history, for example, if you look at history, verses like this were used and passionately defended the American understanding of slavery. But I struggle with that because Paul's command in context is one that calls for slaves and masters to treat one another with respect. Slaves were equal image bearers of Christ. Slaves were engaged in worship services. Slaves were active members and parts of church because slavery was a role, not an identity. And in the American sense, we made it a full-on sense of identity. And it is hard with verses like this that come with a long baggage of misinterpretation and misapplication for us to read them. But there is power in these two. And all of these household codes and all of these ends from what Pastor John preached on last week to both the posture that Paul calls parents, children to engage with one another to how he says if you are a slave or a servant or an owner, there is a universal sense of honoring the humanity, the imago Dei, the image of God within one another. And while slavery is not something that exists for most of us in our day-to-day lives, The call to honor and respect the image of Christ, the image of God in one another is. So 
what does all this have to do with us? I think it has to do a couple of concrete things. First, it points out to us that God cares deeply about all of our life. Right? The whole reason this exists, these sections exist, is because Paul is trying to give people nuts and bolts answers to questions they have. How do we do this? How do I engage with my spouse? How do I engage with my kids? How do I engage with my parents, whether they are younger? How do I deal with my aging parents is an entirely different question. Paul is calling and compelling all of us to say that all of life matters. And in everything that we do, we are supposed to love, honor, and respect one another in the midst of that. And I think that's hard. Because if we apply it to our day-to-day life, if you apply it to this time tomorrow, and you go into your office, if you work at an office, and you talk with your boss who you do not like and you find abusive or abrasive, what does Paul have to say to you? That we're to affirm the image of Christ that's in that person. If you go to school and there's a bully or someone who torments you, what do you do? Do you hate them? Do you hold on to anger? No. You don't try to get punched, but you honor Christ. You honor the image of God that exists in that person. If you are a stay-at-home parent and you have a kid who you both love and is driving you nuts, what are you supposed to do? In all of these things, God calls us to acknowledge the image of God in one another and to love, honor, and respect each other. It's not oppressive. It is liberating. At the end, it reminds me so deeply of the verses that Paul writes elsewhere and he writes in the book of Philippians and he says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit, one mind, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others better than yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. The day-to-day life that we live is to acknowledge someone's ability and existence as a son or a daughter of God and to respond to them with grace and mercy. I'd like to end with this. Sermons are weird things, right? We stand, we talk, we listen, we reflect. Um, And at the end of the day, the point of this is that there's transformation, that there's opportunities, that we have places and services when we can ask ourselves, what is God saying to me and what am I supposed to do about it? So I'm going to pray in a minute and we'll conclude. But before then... I want to invite a time of reflection, especially during Lent, for you to prayerfully consider for parents and children, for servants and masters, what is God calling you to this day? And what should you do about it?
God, be with us this morning. Speak to us the words we need to hear. If we need words of affirmation, if we need words of challenge that call us to action, God, give us grace and peace, and may we follow you this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.